I'm Alana. I use they and she pronouns. And I'm Jessie. I use she and her pronouns. And, and we're, we're Making Ventures. Making Ventures is an organization providing radical Jewish education. And this is the Artist Series, where we showcase queer, Jewish, anti-Zionist artists. Today, we're talking to Parker Sarah. Parker, introduce yourself. Tell me what name you want to be called by, what pronouns you use, where you call home astrological sign if you're into that and what kind of art you make and I'm willing to repeat all of those questions if you need. Okay sounds good. So my name is Parker Sarah. I use she her and they pronouns. I am an actor and a poet and I also work as a teaching artist and I live in right now I live in West Philadelphia that's where I'm based but I am from the upper midwest from Minnesota. I think that was everything. We're very excited to expand outside of the New York community. Not that New York doesn't have a plethora of artists. We could have truly talked to people in New York forever, but it is exciting to get some insight from people who are in other places. I've been looking forward to that. Of course, you talked to Aviva, who grew up in a similar area to you. So I'm excited to see what overlaps y'all have as well. Yeah, I feel like it's interesting to have listened to her episode and because we we went to the same elementary school and the same synagogue. She went to a different high school than I did. And I think her high school experience was really different. We lived in a suburb. I lived right in the city. But our experiences are very similar in a lot of ways. Perfect lead in to our question, but also Midwest Jewish representation good for us and good for the Jews. Tell us a little about what your relationship was to Judaism growing up or and how does Judaism show up in your life now, if at all? So growing up, so my mom is a convert. My dad grew up, I think he grew up sort of reform, but I think that the conversation about having kids made him want to dig in a little more. And I think my mom's conversion pulled him more into Judaism. So we grew up going to a conservative congregation that when I was a kid was walkable from our house, which was a value for my dad, but then they moved it out into the suburbs and we followed. We didn't move out there, but yeah, anyway, you get the idea. So I grew up, I went to a Jewish day school. It means that my relationship to Judaism growing up was much more present and happening every single day than I think a lot of people's were. And I feel grateful for that in a lot of ways. I feel like my relationship to Judaism is very robust at this point, and it is both because of that and in spite of that. I was a pretty critical child, so I had a lot of questions about why, if God was all-powerful, did we need to daven every single day? I was just like, this guy's so insecure, he needs so many phrases. (laughs) I was not, I was not super about it. I didn't want to be bat mitzvahed. I was wrestled into it by my family. I was like, I'm a Satanist, screw you. But once it wasn't compulsory anymore, I felt that I slowly came back to it on my own terms. And now it's a huge part of my identity. Also growing up with my non-Jewish friends, it was a big part of my identity, like bringing them to holidays. And I always really enjoyed sharing that aspect of my culture and educating my friends about about my relationship to Judaism and about what all the rituals were, etc. But I'd say the flip side of going to a Jewish day school is that there's a lot of Zionism. We were really, I would say, indoctrinated to Zionism and also very casually exposed to 
trauma from a really young age. So my awareness of the Holocaust was always extremely front and center. I think those two go hand in hand. And I feel like we've talked about that or mm. on making matches in general, just using the trauma of the very real historical and generational trauma of the Holocaust, but tying it into propaganda indoctrination around Zionism and Israel and being like, oh, you feel how horrible that feels and how scary that is? Here is like the beacon of hope and here is what we need to rely on so that never happens again. I find it so strange as well because I 100% agree. I think that the Holocaust is weaponized by Zionists all the time to justify the whole project. But even as a kid, as soon as I started to come into any amount of awareness of what was actually happening, which took a long time. That wasn't until probably high school, I'd say. But I, I just know that for me to kun along and the never again mindset of the Holocaust and just a commitment to social justice because of being historically oppressed peoples feels very front and center to the way that I conceive of my Judaism and the cognitive dissonance and the connection that is not being made. And this other connection is being made instead between being historically oppressed and Israel has always been very bewildering to me. I find it super confusing. Honestly, good for you that that came as early as high school. I feel like it took me so much longer. Y yes and no. I was having a panic attack in my history class because we were reading Zen and I was like, oh no. I remember we had a speaker come in who was speaking in some, I went to a public high school and we had a speaker come in I don't even remember what they were talking about now, but it must have been something about Zionism. And I felt so attacked just, just from the subject even coming out that I had to run to the bathroom and have a panic attack. But I think just very slowly, because I did have a political consciousness, like I started going to protest the Iraq war when I was in like seventh and eighth grade. And I started to notice that my other friends who felt similarly to me about a lot of things. We had this one big convergence and I started to feel self-conscious and worried about that and eventually had to investigate it. Yeah, I super resonate with the social justice values of Judaism taking such a front seat for me. I feel like before I was even able to identify with some of the spiritual elements that I now identify so closely with. It was really the social justice and the care for the world and the people around us and community that made me so proud to be Jewish. Even when I religiously didn't really vibe with the whole situation, I was like, I'm an atheist, but I like what we have going on in general. So thinking about social activism and the ways that Judaism allows us to tap into social activism, I'm curious what you think about the idea of art as resistance, and if you make art as a form of resistance. I have two primary art forms, one of which is writing poems, and the other of which is acting. And I think I felt for a long time a schism between feeling pulled to, toward activism or feeling like I should be doing something to do tikkun olam, and feeling like the pursuit of my art was at odds with that when it comes to acting, especially because it's it's a storytelling medium and the stories that you tell are really important i feel like you guys talked about this a little bit with with your other actor yeah definitely the longer i've been at it the more i'm like oh right i get to shape the way that i'm having that acting career and i do feel like really central to my philosophy as an artist is that i think the thing that makes humans different than other creatures is just that we really need narrative 
And we are just constantly telling ourselves stories and each other stories in order to understand ourselves. So the way that we tell the stories and which stories we're telling are really central. And I feel like that has steered the way that I've made work as an actor. With that said, I think I am able to tap into the concept of artist resistance a lot more as a poet. And I have a number of poems that are specifically speaking to that. Not always, but sometimes. You're reading our minds somehow because we're just going to bring up your poetry. That is incredible. Yeah. And and we had talked with Daniel a little bit about how identity shows up in art and how identity can impact art. Even when you're acting and you're supposed to take on this role, you bring yourself as an actor to the role. And I did want to ask you generally how your identities impact and show up in your work, whether it's Jewishness, queerness, anti-Zionist, activist, all of these identities that you hold or something else that I haven't mentioned. I'll let you answer that first and then we can go back to your poetry because I have 18 notes on your poetry that I want to expand upon and that's too big of a question to ask all at once. So how do your identities impact and show up in your work? Okay, for sure. I think definitely I would never play Hamlet, for example, the same way that Jude Law would play Hamlet because I am me, my body's different, my voice is different. So obviously we always bring ourselves to our characters, like you're saying. I think for me, it's had an impact on the kind of roles that I'm pulled toward and the kind of projects that I want to work on. And also, I just can't help the way that I am. And then people see me in a certain way. So I think I often am cast as characters who have questions, I would say. And then I've done a lot of queer theater, a lot of feminist theater, and also just a lot of weird theater because I'm a weird person. Do you want to speak more on your weird theater or do you want me to jump into your poetry that I want to jump into? I will give you that space. Uh, oh, we can jump into poems. Okay, amazing. There were some I wanted to start with, the wind talking to the trees and the moon speaking to the earth. There is this line that you have in the wind talking to the trees the the last line the quietest most universal music ever produced was you and I and oh just so good I was just like oh my god this is beautiful but also both of these poems are really rooted in nature and this love poem between these natural elements and it felt inherently very queer and it felt inherently very Jewish in a way, even though it's not specifically rooted in like Tubishvat or anything, but this appreciation of the natural world and the connectedness of it all and this love between natural elements was just something that I felt had been pretty present growing up in a reformed Jewish space. And I was curious if it had anything Jewishly connected or was just deeply rooted in queerness, queer love, romantic love, not at all. Curious what the process was. Thank you for reminding me of that line because those two poems are deep cuts for me. I wrote them, I think I probably wrote those poems in 2015 or something. And they were like the first poems that I had published anywhere. And then I love us that, stalking I, your work. <laughs> thank you for stalking it. And thank you for the research. Very impressive. But I don't think I was thinking about those aspects when I wrote it. I think both of those poems are just running with a metaphor and seeing how far I could take this idea that the wind and the trees are in love with each other, but also maybe annoy each other, or what is that relationship? And the moon and the earth, is it? But I think those elements are certainly there, right? I think whether we know it or not, we are so influenced by our upbringing. And I do think that 
a relationship with the planet is inherently Jewish, at least in the way that I understand Judaism. Even just from going back to Tikkun Olam, the way that my mom explained it to me when we were growing up was that Christians believe that the Messiah has come and will come back, but Jews believe that the Messiah hasn't come and is not going to come until we make a world that is worthy of a Messiah, which means that we have to be stewards of each other and of the planet and make a place that you would want to come to. And I think that, yeah, the literal earth is a part of that. And also, yeah, I think anthropomorphizing nature, anthropomorphizing anything is very inherently queer. And that makes me think so much of your Mourner's Kaddish for RBD. And oh, so many parts I want to pull apart. And obviously this is a more explicitly Jewish home. You're talking about the Mourner's Kaddish, but thinking of several different elements I want to pull out real quick. There's this section where you say, I will be there, but with honey dripping from my mouth. Though I have endless rage, I have no more left for tomorrow. I will be there and I hope no one dies. Light candles, even though the wind will swiftly blow them out. Sing the blessings, even when you only half know them. And I think what you're speaking to, whether this was your intention or not, is this never feeling Jewish enough and the futility of practicing Judaism in this day and age that so many of us struggle with mm. and just so eloquently captured this helplessness but desire to do ritual and engage in, in such a beautiful way. It was really powerful. Thank you. I think for me, ritual has always been the most attractive and enduring part of Judaism for me. Like I, I am an atheist or kind of an agnostic atheist, but for me, being Jewish is so much about the rituals, but even more than that, what the rituals do in terms of creating community. Mm -hmm. You can do the rituals with other people who know how to do them, or you can bring people into the rituals who've never done them before in their life. And the sense of ownership that I have over, this is what you say, this is how you do it, this is why we do it, is so central. And just like, like the oral tradition of that, I just find it so beautiful and so important and it's been a really central part of a lot of my most treasured relationships with people of all faith. I love the part of referencing the synagogue without walls and then the vidui, the beating of our chest, so powerful. And you end on this concept you were just talking about, building the world to come, building the world that we want to live in with these beautiful words. And the world to come, as for that world, we must take fistfuls of honey and ashes and we must build it. And inherently, it reminded me of the quote about keeping the two different quotes in your pocket. Mm -hmm. One, the world was created for you, and then the other, you know, there are nothing but dust and ashes or that interpretation. And it was just, again, so eloquently bringing together the hopelessness of the moment. Also, I'm pretty sure, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you wrote this in 2020. What a time to feel hopeless. And also, maybe you could talk specifically about I don't know if you were in Minnesota in 2020, but that is a time where there was a lot of change and things that were going on that felt terrifying and real, but also what is actually going to change. And all of this is just really captured well in the ash and the honey in your hands and trying to make something beautiful that we want to live in. So I thought, obviously very Jewish, but really summarized kind of the angst and the anxiety and the potential for joy in this moment. So yeah, I did write the poem in summer of 2020 and I was in Philadelphia at the time, but I'm always a little bit homesick for Minnesota. I just love Minnesota so much. And I have, I 
was in Minnesota and living in Minnesota when other terrible precursors to George Floyd took place in Minnesota, like Jamar Clark and like Philando Castile and the desire to be there and be with my community and also the concern for everyone who was there was really palpable at that time, but also in Philly and everywhere else, things were really popping off and Ruth Bader Ginsburg died a couple days after a bunch of white supremacists were threatening to come to the farmer's market, which is in the poem, the farmer's market in West Philly, which is a very frequented by queers of a place. And just all these images of all the high holiday services were having to happen over Zoom. And when I was like walking through the neighborhood, I would see people literally davening on their porches and just everything felt, yeah, very desperate as I'm sure we all remember. But, but also I think a lot of us were, because of not being employed and because of everything that was going on, we had a lot of opportunities to experiment with living our values in ways that we weren't free to do before. And I was thinking a lot at that time about the confluence of anarchist philosophy and anarchist thought and tikkun olam and Judaism and the destruction of the temple and the rebuilding of the metaphorical temple and just feeling these things dovetailing together and needing to put words to that. And obviously that confluence of anarchism and leftist thought in Judaism is not new. It's super, super storied and old and I don't think it's talked about enough. Yeah, definitely. I feel like this is exciting for me and Jesse because I feel like both of our main art forms are poetry and so I'm just realizing this is the first time we've talked to someone who is a poet and so it's fun I think for us to be like yeah just talking poetry. So thank you for bringing us that and thank you for letting us share your work. I think it's really exciting for that reason. In relation to your RBG poem and some of your more leftist politics that you mentioned earlier and like in the spirit of like Jewish questioning and Jewish activism. I was curious if you had any thoughts regarding writing about and honoring Jewish people who have done a lot of really incredible things and then have also been part of decisions that are less than incredible and what that felt like, what that looked like for you. Yeah, I later, I I actually, whenever I read this poem live, I always intro it by by telling people the name of the poem and then telling people that I regret it calling it that oh. because it's not really what it's about and it makes me sound like I'm a democrat which I'm <laughs> I'm not I feel like my mom unironically loves RBG and I think now she also thinks I love RBG and sends me RBG paraphernalia a lot <laughs> and oh she listened to a I read some poems on the radio once and I gave that intro and she was like, nothing oh. wrong with mom and RBG. <laughs> Sorry to put my mom on blast. Nothing like a motherly RBG sound. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's classic. <laughs> but I think the symbolic value of her passing away on, on Arab Rosh Hashanah of that year felt just too significant to pass up. But in the poem, I try to talk about how what we're mourning is not really her, but is all these other things. I don't think that we need to stop making art about problematic people or I just think it needs to be part of a conversation and I'm like this with any sort of problematic figure I think that cutting ourselves off from consuming something can potentially come with a cost but I think we have to engage critically and I think we have to be discerning about if we are continuing to engage how are we engaging and why are we engaging and yeah how are we telling the story of the some of the questions or topics you guys have talked about in previous podcasts has been about bridging the gap between 
elders and the younger generation. And I think that I, I've had, I have this talk with my dad actually about several problematic figures, but I think when he talks about not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, like John Wesley Powell, for example, is this historical figure who was terribly racist and just super shy and just, just, he did all kinds of terrible things. And also he was an important environmentalist and et cetera. And that's not to say we shouldn't talk about the shitty stuff he did and exclusively laud him for his accomplishments, but we should just talk about all of it. And that's the problem with pedestals is that the options are either pedestal or knock someone to the ground. And just nobody is like that. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg isn't like that. And I think that's part of Tikkun Olam is actually engaging with nuance. Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for asking the question I was going to ask. You literally beat me to it. You're in the rhythm with us. I can't agree more with what you said, and I think it's so important. I think that's that whole idea is something that we talk about very often on the podcast, but just in general, I think both of our value systems are very much restorative justice, transformative justice minded. And I think that having to hold the nuance and be able to talk about someone and maybe the things that they've done that have been beneficial while also talking about the ways that they've harmed other people without just canceling people from our communities is really important. And I think a lot of times in the liberal leaning and unfortunately leftist spaces, there's the idea that like, oh, if you still associate with or listen to or watch that person, you're a bad person or you're doing a bad thing because that person's been canceled. So we're not supposed to engage with that anymore. But that's so antithetical to the world that I would hope, I think we're all trying to build in which we can grapple with people's harm and sit with it and still acknowledge their humanity and give them the opportunity to move forward from it. And I do think that gets so complicated post-mortem or in people's passing because people who have passed no longer really have the opportunity to hold themselves accountable and they can't speak for themselves anymore. So I think that's an interesting concept. And also, if you don't engage with someone's ideas or someone's work, then you also are missing out on the opportunity to engage with that work critically. So it's like, how do you even know what someone is saying? How do you know where someone's at. I do find this kibosh on the whole thing to be almost infantilizing. If someone is telling you you absolutely cannot engage with this, is it because you think that the idea is going to influence the person who's engaging with it? Like we, we all hopefully should be able to cultivate our own sense of personal integrity and our own sense of discernment as artists, as people with a value system to be able to assess and engage with an idea and figure out, okay, where do I stand? on this and where would I move it to if I could how would I move the conversation I think that's really something yeah that all of us can take note and practice I definitely find myself in situations where I'm like oh I can't believe you even listen to or engage with that person's content but then it's also like well I guess I'm only saying that because I have heard what that person says but I don't know that for myself and so I can't actually back any argument I have against you engaging with that person. That's in reference to people who I think are more presently shitty and maybe wouldn't be held accountable to their work, but it's also at least know your enemy, know what you're up against and know the media that you're critiquing, engage with it before critiquing it. And I do think that's important. Yeah, and we're speaking in general terms, of course, we're all gonna use our judgment in each individual circumstance to say, no, really, I don't wanna be anywhere near that. With with RBG, she's also such a public figure, even when she was still alive, I think the idea that she herself is going to be 
accountable in some way to us, people who don't personally know her for her missteps, feels less important than people who stand her. How are they going to engage critically with what she's done? And what does her legacy mean? I don't know. I'm almost getting an idea. I might start ruminating on a sequel poem about Ooh. Jewish and RBG. I don't know. I'm just thinking about it. Yes. Okay. <laughs> we did a workshop a while back for a group of Jewish women, middle-aged Jewish women, and we touched on RBG and tried to have a bit of a critical conversation about her. And I don't really think people hearing what we were saying <laughs> very much but you're right and that with people like that it's even less so about them taking accountability and more like what can the people who <laughs> want to put rbg quotes on their walls take a second and also think critically about decisions that rbg made and what that means that's still you can still have a level of reverence and respect while also being critical of someone because no one is perfect yeah i mean i feel like this conversation about nuance and about how to engage that knee-jerk defensiveness also is such a big part of the conversation about zionism the first time that i think i said anything critical of and it was just a question i had just found out that the reason that herzl and all them got were given that land was because it was annexed by the british and i remember i think i was 12 maybe asking my dad being like wait so if that happened then whose land is it and he was driving at the time and he almost crashed the car he was so upset about it and it was really just the question and yeah just asking the question and I think that is something that I feel like needs to be addressed in a conversation with people who are really committed to the Zionist project actually when I was listening to your episode with Aviva a thought that I had was one of the things that I'm very much into art adjacent thing is that I work as a teaching artist and I recently took a certification in trauma-informed practices for teaching artists. And we did a lot of really great reading and I got to understand how trauma works on the brain, which is also just a special interest of mine. And I'm going to butcher his name, but there is this amazing book called My Grandmother's Hands by Resma manic yeah. a really good book incredible um, classic yeah, he, social work read oh do you know yeah, it yeah. so how he talks about how in a discussion about oppression you have to get to it from the body level because the way the trauma works on the brain you are just never going to get past this reaction of defensiveness and fear that comes up and if you don't get past that the higher brain is never online and you're never actually able to process what the conversation is about and it, it just feels like we get derailed at absolutely step one of a conversation with our elders about zionism i really love this conversation too about bridging the gap but also wrestling with your own people which is the struggle that we choose and i think this all ties into the to the anti-zionist movement i've struggled with this in the past few years definitely but the idea of gatekeeping who can be an anti-zionist and like mm -hmm principled anti-Zionism really looks like and who gets to define that and absolutely being accountable to Palestinians and the Palestinian movements that are dictating anti-Zionism and acknowledging that it's never going to feel like enough in these communities in which Zionism is so embedded and it's never going to feel like we're pushing it far enough but those conversations are where things start to begin and it's hard also going back to the art of it all when art begins to 
feel performative or begins to feel like you're having to push a certain message through that is super aligned with your politics or avoids the messiness or the things that could get you canceled because then you're not really engaging with your mm -hmm. art anymore. You're putting out mm -hmm. something that people want. And this was for our next question, but you can respond to any of this if you want about the relationship between art and capitalism or art and the productivity culture and trying to produce something for consumerism rather than for what your art really means to you. Yeah, I think I, that's something that I, as I'm sure we all do, but I feel like I struggle with that a lot. So with the poetry, I've always been writing. I feel like writing poems is an essential thing that I've always done. And I only really started putting the poems into the world pretty recently. And I think a big part of that is that I, on some subconscious level, wanted to safeguard it from that, especially because the other thing that I do, which is acting, is there's such a scarcity mentality in acting. There's a lot of actors and so few jobs and even fewer jobs that pay a living wage and make it possible to live that life so it's highly competitive and there's a lot of performative self-promotion that goes on and a lot of you constantly have to be hustling for yourself and the job is non-stop rejection and divorcing yourself as a human being from who you are as an artist but also a product to a certain extent can be really tough. I think for me, I have all these things that I, I did a BFA in musical theater and an MFA in acting. And especially in the BFA, I feel like a lot of the language was like, every single day you have to do something for your art. And if you're not, then you're not succeeding. Successful artists do this, not successful artists do that. There's a lot of that that bounces around in my head. I feel like I have been on a constant cyclical journey of learning to rest and slow down or learning that I am more successful and better at doing all those things when I'm not in such a spiral of how am I going to be a product? How am I going to be successful? For me, it's been very helpful in the last couple of years because I am like a, a total outside nature babe where I'm like, oh, I love doing this thing, but I could make a different choice and go live in the middle of nowhere and also be happy and just reminding myself that I made up a game to play which is the pursuit of art as a career and playing the game is how I've given my life meaning right now but I could opt out of the game if it stopped being fun that's been my way to deal with it because you do as an actor if you're trying to make your living as an actor you do have to engage with the hustle of it all so that's how I kept myself sane in it and with the poetry I move a lot slower with that I write a ton that I don't Submit and primarily focusing more on other things and I'm going to continue to move slow with that. Sorry, that was such a ramble. And you have so many other good parts of the way that you asked that question. Sometimes I feel that way asking the question. I'm like, where did I get that from? Where did I start? I don't know. But it doesn't matter because you can go anywhere you want with the next question, which is, as we begin to wrap up, if you could leave all of our listeners with one message or five, up to you, what would it be? Oh, I guess it would be to be easy with yourselves and also with each other. To bear in mind the nuance that we talked about and that you only get to see what you get to see of your impact on other people. Mm. You might have an argument with someone about Zionism or whatever and feel like you came away from that with nothing and that no one understood each other and that it just led to discord, but it can plant a seed. And I feel like for me, the process of a seed of doubt being planted, to being able to publicly say to people that I am an anti-Zionist and that I'm not about the Zionist project and coming up with alternatives to that took 10 to 15 years, probably, 
So yeah, just be easy. Yeah, I love that. I feel like I gave that advice to someone this past week and I was like, I need to internalize that for myself, but it is really something that I hope everyone can sit with. I also love the idea of even planting a seed being valuable and not really knowing when we plant seeds. I know there's some proverb about seeds that would be really fitting right now, but y'all get the point. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I just want to note, I feel like a very Jewish geography moment happened with me and Parker Sarah, because during Pride, we ended up running into each other because Parker's here through Aviva and I'm friends with Aviva. And I didn't even realize who you were at first. And I was like, oh my God, that's incredible. I don't know. It was just, it was extra special to be able to meet you in person before coming to the podcast with you. Yeah, it was awesome. It was super special. Yes. Just like meeting that web of every every Jew knows every Jew. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, extra special during Pride too. It was like, okay, queer Jews, you love to see it. And queer Jews, sorry, I know we're wrapping up, but I just, <laughs> for me, the, the confluence of queer Jews who are artists and even theater artists and stuff, when I discovered that, that was world changing. And that's, okay, that's another thing I would want to say to people is that there's just so many ways to be Jewish. And I feel like so many of us are, have either felt alienated from our community of origin, but here in Philly and also back in Minneapolis, there are like radical anti-Zionist queer Jews who are doing the most off the wall weird theater form spiels. And I just remember my mind being completely blown because I was like, I think I always thought that my community as a Jew was separate from my community mm. as a queer and that's not true everyone's people are out there somewhere oh seriously and that's what's been so nice about doing this series that I wish that we could do it forever is it's just so cool to see how many people we can talk to with shared identities and I've also feel like I've gotten feedback where people are like it's so awesome that you found so many people I'm finding new people to make part of my community and yeah I just love that and I think it's so important that queer Jewish anti-Zionist artists come together. I can think of three or four more people who I'm like, oh, they would be such a good fit for this series. <laughs> Next summer, yeah, maybe yeah. we'll make it annual. Maybe <laughs> you should. Up. Okay, incredible. TBD next summer. Maybe we'll be back with more. But again, thank you so much for being here. Do you have any ongoing work you want to highlight at the end? I don't know. I have a website. I have, a, I have an Instagram I don't really have anything that is ongoing as of right now, but I do keep those things updated. Awesome. We will put those in the podcast description for anyone who's listening. So thank you again. We will see everyone back here next Wednesday for our next episode with Nick, whose artist name is Tahini, which I think is super cute. They're an agender Jewish artist, tattooer, and farmer who lives in Northern New York, but is originally from the Philadelphia area. Shout out Philadelphia. Nice. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks so Thank much. You.